morning, everybody. Welcome back to some of you. And uh, I'm going to ask Derek to come and do our reading for us this morning from the Yom Kippur. Thank you, Bruce. Philippians chapter 4, and uh, and we're picking up in uh, the series, Finding Hope in Uncertain Times. It's like our Easter application rollout uh, indulgence. We're, we're just sort of like staying with Easter for a while. Um, you know, why have one weekend when you can live in the resurrection? So, um, and, and, and this is you know, rooted in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, in God's great mercy, he's given us new birth. Like, if you ever needed a thought, I need to begin again. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And then week one, we, uh, and this was back in Palm Sunday, hashtag false hopes must fall. Remember, uh, Jesus saw only too clearly as he entered Jerusalem what the people were really hoping for, and therefore he could immediately prophesy how badly that would end. Remember, they were all cheering for him, but they weren't putting their hope in God. They just wanted to replace the people in power get rid of the them and put in people like us. And so if only we had the swords, if we had the money, if we had the titles, if we had the position, if we had the power, then we would fix the world. Jesus says, nah. You're just as destructive as the rest of them until something huge happens inside of you. So 
rid of the false hosts, the idols, the pharaohs, and the powers that they are all after. You're part of the problem. And it's going to end real, real badly. In fact, not a single stone in the temple would stay on top of each other. I honestly think that if Jesus reflecting on that triumphal entry just gave him a bit of peace and said, okay, Lord, you reach me in the face. It was such a commitment. The next day, he packed his bags. He said, this is it. I'm going home. Done. Done for life. So false hopes was four. Unless you change, you destroy yourself and the city you're going to save. And then why evil simply did not win. We saw our champion Jesus, hello Gandalf, standing on a narrow bridge or hanging on a cross, declaring to evil, you shall not pass. He faces evil, fights it, seems to be overcome though, but refuses to let it pass or pass him out. It's probably the most important bit. See, the danger with evil is that it feeds on what it triggers in its victim. So if you give it nothing to feed on, it dies. Peter is so clear that as he was hanging on the cross, he committed no sin in his eyes or his heart. Because evil stops dead in its tracks when it comes to Peter. And then week number three, Devin took us to that beautiful Old Testament picture, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9, where like seemingly the people of God have been felled. This beautiful large tree has been cut down. There's just this raw stump in the ground. The mighty tree of God's people has been felled and raped. The roots of that perfect tree came opening up and kingdom and empire and establishment has been born. But evil stopped it. purpose of his kingdom and the salvation of God. And Devin showed us three-phase reality. <laughs> we, we're able to say, this is not good. This is definitely not good. But we are prisoners of hope because we do not let the victory define what we see. So today, we shift from these glorious sort of like theological truths wonderful things to very practical actions that are going to help us find hope in times that are certainly challenging. In a few weeks, we're going to be going there. And so I want to talk today about forming habits of hope. Philippians chapter 4, you've heard it in Afrikaans, follow me in the English, therefore my brothers and sisters, listen to his affliction, you whom I love you whom I long for, he says, I'm homesick for you. He's in a, he's in a Roman, he's in Caesar's jail in Rome. Chained. He's now chained. This is not the house arrest case. And he says, I'm homesick for you. Love, you're my joy, you're my pride. This is not what Charlie's going to get on May the 6th, you know, the big diver. This is the, vic the, the, the victory week, you know, when you've won the race and, and, and looked at these people and said, you're my, you're my victory week. You stand up, I feel so committed to you. Stand
confirmed in the Lord in this way. So he's introduced in the New Testament, just been talking about the fact that they are actually citizens in heaven, living in Philippi, bringing this new kingdom from God into the earth, and Jesus is going to transform everything when he comes back. And then he says, so now you're going to stand first. He's going to give them practical coaching on standing first. Then he treats Pat like a principal. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind if we agree with one another in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you how she can handle it. Help these women since they have fought at my side. These women in ministry have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of all our co-workers, the co-workers, the people working and their names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in the Lord Jesus Christ. So finally, brothers and sisters, I end my prayer by saying this, that So the church of Philippi has this amazing backstory. You'll have to go read it in Acts chapter 16. Starts with a wealthy businesswoman who becomes like the host and elder of the church. Still goes to jail, comes out of jail, keeps going to her house, takes care of them. She's clearly the, the, the hostess uh, and, and, and the leader of the church. And then the, the first member is a demonized slave girl who gets set free. Quite a, a contrast, you know, socioeconomic differences and everything like that. And then the next uh, member who comes along with his whole household is the Roman jailer who whips and beats Saul. So it's a really quite an interesting start. And Paul says, you're my crown, you're my joy. I love you guys so much. And they had this amazing journey with them. And now it's probably a couple of decades later, but he hasn't forgotten. And he loves this church. But he recognizes that as much as there is love and faith, you read about this in chapter 1, end of chapter 1, there's also opposition, there's persecution. And then beginning of chapter 4, we see hints of why he has a so much insight into humility and grace and focus in the rest of the letter. 
because there's this conflict uh, internally in the church. And uh, yeah, can't always do this. Sometimes just a, a command or an instruction is just to remind you of what you're doing well. But if, and there's clearly an element to which this is true, the commands are there to fix a problem when they had some big problem. I mean, that's, that's fitting. There are dangers out there, yes, dangers to their faith, dangers, opposition, persecution. You know, Peter described it, confiscation of property. People in, in real danger. But he says, your big fight is not the dangers out there. He's going to set, he's, he's going to use military language in the first thing he's telling you. I, this whole section is how to stand firm. And, and this is not to give way, not to lose ground. And the dangers are not nearly as much out there as they are in here, in my body, in my emotions, and in my thinking. And he's going to deal with all three of those things. And they are habitual, which is where the battle really rages. The battle not to lose joy and get depressed, to resist being harsh and losing consideration of others. These are the things you've got to, you know, kind of read in the flip side of what he's saying. The battle against anxiety and worry and stress and hopelessness and prayerlessness and the battle against entitlement and being resentful. And his intro when he says you shall not pass is fighting talk. And, and the language is, there's a lot of sort of battle language in it. They fought for me. They contended with me for the gospel. We're soldiers together in this fight. You shouldn't be fighting each other. Here's what he says to you, Euodians and Sympathites. It's you shall not pass talk. Evil is coming at you. No, you're not going to get destroyed. This is a fight. You're not going to win. Now, in the face of this battle, Paul's primary focus is the habit of learning to pray. God bless, there's a battle out there, but that battle stands no chance if you don't learn to do these things. This is what's going to get you victory in the fight. Cool. Thank you, Sam. So he starts taking them through, and the first thing he does is he says, he wants them to guard their unity. Like that, that is a given, I guess. Guys, you're not fighting one another. Fight one another and you're defeated already. That's what he tells the Corinthians. You, you're to contend together. Guys, your names are in the Legion's book of life. You're, you're all recorded, but you're recorded not in Caesar's army. You're recorded in the Lamb's book of righteousness. He says, so I want to place you in living differently, in fighting different fights. I want to place you in a place where evil can't come in past you. If you're hoping it doesn't get past everyone else, I want to show you how evil doesn't get past you. He says, God's within us. God's without. The two are connected. They ultimately define our life. God's presence. Our habits. So the first habit he wants to get them into, and they're going to do two 
this week we've been releasing our religious themes. So the first group benefit is in Latin, and it's the habit of rejoicing. So Richard Burnbrandt, as a Romanian pastor who found himself opposed to two totalitarian regimes and systems in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. The first was Nazism. And uh, and during the time of the Nazi invasion of Romania, he worked tirelessly to protect and save many Jews from the effects of occupation, concentration camps. They built networks to save people. He spent all his time, and they celebrated when the Russian army came through to set them free from the tyranny of the of fascist Nazism. He said their joy was very short-lived because getting rid of them uh, did not bring the kingdom. It just brought communism. And so the Russians who had marched through their country to get to Germany simply stayed there, and Romania got absorbed into the Soviet Union. And then, in that space, and of course that was militant and atheistic and opposed to any form of expression of faith, and in that space, his efforts were his Christian witness, and then standing up for those who were being victimized by the system that he himself was then imprisoned for his testimony of faith. And Richard was, for a period of about 20 years, burned, locked in an icebox, kept in solitary confinement, and he would pray to God for the rest of his life. He died in 2001, so released in about 1969, but he described how deprived of sleep, solitary confinement in the most appalling, unsanitary conditions that he had been trying to break and experience. God saves you from yourself. His wife and his mind and children could barely sustain him as a worker and friend. Like the Apostle Paul, he wrote this command to rejoice while he was bound in a Roman dungeon. Rejoicing. It's the habit of rejoicing. It's the habit of praising. It's the habit of turning his heart and his mind to God and recognizing a number of things. And so he describes how he dances in his cell, dressed in rags, singing out his faith with all his heart. And he's focused on the nature and the person and the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And he's celebrating the truths of the gospel, that he's been saved, that he's been forgiven, that Jesus loves me, even me. And he's awed by the wonder of his salvation. And he sees in his rags, sometimes in that cold, cold 
get it out of the way before death, a joy stalks as an impatient what he's facing and what they're facing. And believe me, we were uncertain times. Joy was first an input. That's why we grab ourselves by the scruff of the neck on a Sunday morning and sing songs with breaking hearts so much. Because joy is not just an outcome. It's an input. And when you choose it and when you go for it, and you surrender yourself to the glories of what you can rejoice in. And he says, rejoice in the Lord. Joy starts as a habit of being stopped. Joy takes us forward as well as physically forward. Now Paul says, learn to do it all the time. Rejoice in the Lord. Always and again I say rejoice. That dates me. Um, and if someone starts singing it in the round, then that dates you. <laughs> but rejoice always, always. God has Rejoice. Like, guys, this is so fundamental. Do it again and again and again and again. What's he say? Make it habitual. Like, make it a thing you do. It, it needs to become in the groove for you, in the challenges you face, in the brokenness all around you, in the persecution, in the like the object of your most uh, compassionate, urgent prayer. Rejoice in the Lord. Say it again. Rejoice. Do it again. Do it again and again. Why? Because it's his habit. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. Don't I get mad? Rejoice in the Lord. Thank you, Mike. Jesus has an iPad in front of him. 
for most of us, it comes when we're schooling our kids and they're sleeping. I wake you. Now, what do you do when you get down to it? What do you do? Do you, there's a pause or, I don't know if some of you even remember, there's a word called boredom. Now, now we've become so addicted to stimulation that, that you know, when I was a kid, there was a thing called boredom, when you had nothing to do. I don't know if anyone actually remembers that word or has felt it lately. Most of us have not felt any boredom in the last five years. And it's so hyper-stimulated that we're claiming boredom as life. And what's, what's with the dominant hand? Mr. Yes, who's going to do that? You know, it's just outdated. 2019, we just met Lucy's dad on the phone. The average person has seen on their phone 2,872 unused games. So touch their phone. 2,617 times a day. Is that a habit? Like, what's my predominant habit? And what's it doing to me? That was 2019. I mean, we then had to do this virtual living online from 2020. How, how, how many of us probably got a little bit more habituated to the phone thing? I did. I mean, I get this message on a Sunday morning. I was super terrified. And this week I've had to fight hard when you have kids in your screen, to like bring down my screen time count. You know, Apple sends me this thing. Your screen time is down. This is 25%. You know. And I've got to go, I am so habituated to this. How can I get rid of it? How does this impact the level of faith in your heart? What is that doing to the level of hope in my heart? It doesn't take long reading the news, let alone more than an hour a day in my case, for me to go, I need to find hope. Let's find hope. I don't know what, what, what your online faith dopamine rush, maybe, like, ah, oh, there it is, they like what I posted, whatever it is, you know, that little victory, and then, and then, you know, you get a fake news story, and, and then you finally get to turn off the thing for the day. What is the impact on the level of hope in your heart? And if I were to give as much time to rejoicing as I gave to my phone, what would the effect be on the level of hope in my heart? You see, you see how practical Paul is being here? He's really, really wanting us to understand what we repeat again and again and again is actually going to, I mean, 
this concern for their honor. Rather, they treat every person as if they were nobility, royalty, and a gentleman or a gentle lady. I mean, this has the echo again of 1 Peter chapter 2, where he says, you know, honor everybody, love the Lord, da, 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 and honor the emperor. In other words, you treat everyone as if they were an emperor, and you treat the emperor as if he's just human. Remember that Jesus loved courtesy, gentleness, and honor. And then again, it's a little fuzzy. Um, it's not just let your honor, your spirit, gentleness be evident to all, but make it for all. Now, I can treat one or two people with respect and everyone could see that. That's not enough. But do I treat Sometimes we're watching these these things, and and the reporter asks a question of the person sitting in the press conference, and it's you know the guy arranging the pressure says, "We're not going to dignify that person, you know, because it's so loaded, it's so hurtful, it's so oh, I'll say it's so unanswered, whatever it is." why Timothy is there, because you can understand why concern is there, you can understand why Paul is there. It's such a complex, beautiful, layered idea. So, make honor any guise of favoritism recognized told me that when Jason and Susie was a little boy, he was walking holding his mom's hand in a Tobiathon. So it's this black
sinner. He has to see the weakness in his own people. He refused to receive it. Remember the Pharisees praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the sinner. Jesus never once prayed like that. In fact, he understood on the cross he would become like that sinner. Every human being is liable, not because of what they've done wrong, but because of his sin. It wasn't a once-off thing he did. It's what he did for everyone. It's how he treated everyone. He had everyone in that honor pass from one God-loving person to another and become his brothers and so then credit your sin and his sin. It doesn't look good at all for every you know, theology and all the rest, but it was because he knew he could become nothing like that. He saw every person as he could never look at and could become And we do this with the Lord as well. He says, let your weakness lie on others who evidence it. Everyone needs to experience it. Everyone needs to go through this process. This is a habit you're going to cultivate. This is a way of living. It has to become the new you. And you do this because the Lord is real. Now, theologians love this passage. We got all excited because Paul wants a habit to be formed by eschatology, a big word, which is all about Jesus coming back again. And so we want to debate the doctrines about Jesus, you know, and pre-mill and post-mill and amill and fag-mill and who knows what else. And we have all this stuff going. And we get so excited because these habits of hope are rooted in eschatology. It's Jesus is coming again. And so we have these habits of hope in Paul's writings rooted in the view that Jesus is real and he's coming theologians disagree with this. The gaggle of theologians, and they insist that we must interpret this as presence, not eschatology. This is imminent. This is God. He's right here, right now, in this space. And so they insist we have to choose. Is this future? Or is this presence? And the answer is Yes. You see, we don't do all those pre-mill and those fragmill things. We have a thing called kingdom theology that believes that we are out of time, in the best sense of the word, in that we are the people of God who bring his future into the present or history space. So when something defines the future through his people, it can define And so we wouldn't one day be around a throne where you don't even need the sun to shine or the moon because literally the Lord will fill the place with his light from the darkness. We want the future and the presence. We look to those people to be able to say, So, this man's habit made him a 
possible to be in the room but missing an aspect of it. And when I have it, the way I'm engaging in it, it's like I just have a change of the past making present the absence of the present. That's how I like to think of it. We are also called Jesus, you're walking in joy, and you're walking in prayer, and you're walking in thanksgiving, and you're walking in honor of honor of others. You won't just be expecting the world to go to hell in a handbasket, and one day Jesus to come and solve the problem. You will be expecting him today, maybe just today, as you bring present joy, hope, healing, grace, salvation, somebody's life back to the world. we need those foundational ideas. We've got those from Easter, but now we need some foundational habits. 